Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hi, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. I am joined today by a young woman whose work I have followed for a few years now. Her name is Hazel Edwards, and I first saw Hazel speak at a conference for educators focused on supporting LGBTQ youth back in, I think it must have been 2016 or 17. Um, And she was by far the youngest speaker there. I think, um, Hazel, I think you were maybe 20 at the time. Um, It was actually my, um, the day I did my preliminary speech was the day before my 19th, um, or no, the day before my 20th birthday. Oh, my gosh. Well, your talk was the buzz of the conference, I can tell you. People were incredibly moved, not only by your personal story, which is, um, remarkable, but um, I think seeing you speak really brought to life an idea that as educators and as folks in social movements pay a lot of lip service to, but don't always do, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, if, when the goal is to serve a community that is hurting, um, recognizing that the people who are members of that community are truly the most knowledgeable and the best equipped to lead. They may need mm-hmm. resources, they may need support, but ultimately, um, empowering advocacy has to center the people um, that you're supposedly advocating for. And often um, people in social justice um, circles are not, um, not so hip to that idea. So your, your speech really drove that home for a lot of people. So, And I'm hoping we can dive into that and much more today. So, Hazel, welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. Yes, thank you for having me. So I um, I recently started listening to um, another podcast hosted by a woman named um, Jana Schmeeding, and she starts her interviews with this question that I really love. Um, so Hazel, what words, this is a, a podcast where we talk a lot about identity. What words do you use to describe yourself and your identity as by way of uh, introduction to the listeners? Yep. So I personally identify as a non-binary trans woman um, and trans femme who is also pansexual and I'm a person of color. Um, And those are like words that I use to describe my personal identities um, navigating the world. Um, Yeah. And I first interacted with you because of your work at Attic Youth Center in Philadelphia. Um, and I believe that's still you, that you still work there. Is that correct? Yes. So I um, so when I when you first met me at that speech, it was my first year um, full time. So it was like the first um, six months that I was hired. Um, but in January, I just got promoted to interim director of the education department at the Attic Youth Center. Congratulations. Thank you. And can you tell us a little about your work um, with Attic Youth Center and what what services the center provides? Yeah, so the Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only independent LGBTQ youth center. So um, we open every day and we market ourselves as an after-school program. So we're open every day at 3 o'clock. Um, our hours change based off of the day of the week. We're open Monday through Friday. We provide services for adolescents and young adults, so 14 to 23. Um, we are a drop-in space where young folks get to come in, grab a snack, uh, flirt. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't necessarily write those in our grants. Uh, <laughs> but there's not many spaces or places where LGBTQ young people are able to freely express their attractions. Um, And then we um, also have CAGs or creative action groups, which range from any and everything that young folks want to see, do or engage in within reason. So we do have poetry groups, creative writing groups. We do offer um, paid high school internships um, for social justice work. And it's very vital for us to pay young people, um, you know, for the labor that they're doing um, and for the work. And that's another essential to to show that we are actually investing in the development and growth of young people. 
Um, we also have hot meals every day. Sometimes we'll just see young folks showing up for that hot meal. Uh, and then we also have um, a therapy counseling department. So we have individual counseling, family counseling, and relationship counseling. And it's very vital for us to also provide um, uh, relationship counseling because young people are engaging in relationships. So it's vital for them to learn how to have healthy relationships while they're young. And then the final department where I come from is the Bryson Institute of the Etic Youth Center, which is the education outreach department. So what I do is I direct a team of youth workers and um, and a trainer um, to go out into different faith-based organizations, community um, agencies, um, schools, universities, juvenile detention centers, child welfare centers, and provide um, cultural competency trainings and teach them best practices while working with LGBTQ youth, specifically LGBTQ youth of color within their agencies. And so I would love for you to tell us about the story of how you find your way to this work, because I think it's really a remarkable one. And you've already had a tremendous influence on the way that the city of Philadelphia, that the um, that the school system there approaches the way that they serve LGBTQ youth. So do you mind talking about um, how you find your way to this work and, and how that intersects with your personal story? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't mind. Uh, I, I always start off by answering this question with, I never grew up. I never grew up in my life saying I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to be an activist. Um, you know, that's not, you know, the life path journey that I thought of myself when I was five years old. When I was five, I wanted to be a firefighter. Um, <laughs> um, you know, to be transparent, um, I did. Um, you know, that's not necessarily the direction that my life had pushed me to. Um, so I was kind of forced into doing advocacy work and non-discrimination work. Um, I did go to a single-sex school here in Philadelphia, um, and I used the language of single-sex school very explicitly and recognizing that it's a school with people who are assigned, you know, the same sex at birth. Mm -hmm. um, but not everybody in that school would identify, for example, as a boy. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I went to a single sex school. So I was assigned male at birth. Um, and uh, as I was going to this school, um, I felt really uncomfortable. There's been moments, um, for example, like little anecdotes throughout my high school career where, um, you know, this boy found me on social media and I had pictures of me, um, how I express now. There was pictures of me back then, like how I would dress outside of school and things like that, um, very femininely, you know, and, you know, basically he screenshotted that and would send it to all of the boys in school. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've experienced moments of, um, of, you know, not feeling comfortable or safe in that school. And then when I would address that to administrators, um, there was, you know, not really understanding of what was going on because, you know, the issues that I had was different than the, the issues that the gay boys in that school had, for example. Right. Um, and, and they felt different for me than those experiences felt differently for the gay guys in those school or in that school. And so, um, you know, that school pretty much expressed my, um, allowed me to express my, um, my ability, you know, to be who I am. But when it came down to me identifying as a woman, so this is another thing to talk about. Um, we have to break up, um, the entire LGBTQ acronym. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we do because the T is usually silent. And when we're talking about the LGBTQ community as a whole, we're talking about gay men or lesbian women and not really honoring queer people in that community, not honoring trans people, not honoring people who are different pertaining to their gender. We're only talking about sexuality largely. Um, and so, um, 
what initiated me into what made me like eventually leave that school was it was my mid-senior year and I missed about 75% of my 11th grade school year because I was in and out of mental facilities, partial programs, placements, because nobody knew what was happening with me. But the reality was, was that I had a lot of internalized transphobia. You know, I believe the stereotypes and stigma to be true of trans women, um, specifically um, trans women of color because of intersectionality. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in this interview. Um, and, you know, it was very difficult. Um, my principal went to have a meeting with me about my absences and my tardies. Um, why wasn't I showing up? And this was my mid-senior year at this point. And I realized in that moment that I wouldn't be able to talk to him authentically about how I was feeling if I didn't disclose that I was trans, that I am trans. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable being in that school as a result. So the principal had no idea what was going on or what was happening, which is a common response. Um, if this is the first time you are uh, like meeting an out trans person, um, because just because another thing to recognize is just because people are not out in your agency or in your place of work does not mean that people do not exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if we are not having positive conversations around trans people, then why do you think that trans people will come out to you? You know, so it's not like trans people don't exist, right? It's that we just don't feel safe or comfortable maybe in this space. And so we should do something that shows that you're inviting to um, and accepting of our identity. Um, because it's safe for y'all to say that y'all are transphobic, but it's not always safe for us to say that we're trans. Right. Um, and, and yeah, so I had that meeting and so he brought in the guidance counselor because, uh, he wasn't well equipped with how to, um, best address me. Um, and the guidance counselor came in and we had a discussion. Um, I knew the rule book like the back of my hands, but the guidance counselor ultimately at the end of the conversation said, you are a boy. And then when I heard that, when I heard those words, I said, okay, so I'm not being seen in this space. I'm not being heard in this space. Um, and my gender at this point is non-negotiable because the year prior, I was suffering from a lot of internalized transphobia. You know, it took a lot of work within myself to even say, I am trans. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, it was a matter of life or death for me to be able to express and live my authentic truth. Um, so I packed up my stuff and never went back to that school as a student. Um, after being pushed out of school, I shortly was pushed out of my home. Um, I was having a lot of disagreements with my mother and she would say some very transphobic things, um, which made me not feel safe or comfortable there um, or not the beginning spaces where I would want to start to learn about my womanhood, mm -hmm. right? Learn about being a, a woman in this society. And that was just not the best environment to do that. And so I was living on um, street homeless and in shelters for a little bit um, because of that, that, um, that safety component. And people oftentimes argue with me and say, um, well, do you think that like living at home would have been safer than living out on the streets? Um, I was able to live my free self, my free authentic self on the streets. You know, I wasn't able to always do that in my home. Um, and yeah, so doing that, um, I shortly got connected with the Attic Youth Center. So I saw an application for the Justice League. Um, and at that time, it was for older youth, so 18 to 23 year olds, to talk about their own ex uh, experiences with systemic oppression um, and to create curriculum around gender, sexuality, and race based oppression and systems of care. So, um, you know, through doing that work, um, um, I did several internships at the attic. So I did about four or five internships there. Um, and and, uh, you know, a University of Pennsylvania professor, um, she has a daughter who now is 10. She's a black trans girl. And, um, you know, the University of Pennsylvania's professor said, we need to do something. There needs to be a policy. My daughter needs to be respected in schools. There needs to be a policy in place to protect trans people um, in the school district. So um, the school 
the school district of Philadelphia referred them to the attic. And so um, it started out as a listening session and I was one of the young people in that listening session. And so we shared about our experiences in schools and then the school district said, okay, there needs to be a policy, but they didn't know where to start. So they came, um, so the University of Penn professor, Pierre um, led then, so she came to the attic and had the Bryson Institute. Um, and I was a part of the Bryson Institute um, begin to create this policy and to actually tailor the model policies to actually reflect the young people that we were both seeing as well as our own experiences, right? So there was a lot of language of consistent and persistent within a lot of model policies. So they were saying we can um, we can honor a trans young person only if right there's always caveats um, if they consistently and persistently express within their gender that they are saying. Um, but there's not many places there's not many young people that feel safe or comfortable navigating their neighborhoods or navigating school or navigating their homes because they have to go back there they have to leave out of there and come back there. Um, you know, they don't necessarily always feel safe to consistently and persistently show up. Also, that language is very much um, put on cisgender people to then police trans people. Mm -hmm. So it was giving an opportunity for cisgender people to show up in that agency and say, well, I know what being trans looks like um, and you do not fit my bias around trans people and how they look. And so therefore we cannot even support you. Um, and so there's that locks a lot of trans people out. Also, this is one of the only um this is one of the biggest trans policies for school districts that actually honor non-binary people. Um, there's also a lot of model policies that don't, um, you know, actually take into account non-binary people. They only look at transness and trans young people through a binary lens. Um, and the only way that non-binary people are showing up within trans policies is if we're having gender neutral bathrooms. Mm. But gender neutral bathrooms is not the only issue that non-binary people are experiencing within these schools or within any agency, to be honest, whether you're young or not. Um, but if we keep gearing our conversation to trans people through the lens of bathrooms, we're only looking at trans people as their genitals. So, again, we need to actually talk about the real life experiences, the day to day experiences that both trans binary and non-binary people experience, um, because our main issue is not bathrooms. Right. Yes, that is a part of the things that we're advocating for in gender neutral language is a thing that we're advocating for, but also too, um, you know, there's so many day-to-day, -day, um, you know, things to talk about. We need to talk about um, employment discrimination. We need to talk about housing discrimination. We need to talk about actually, it's actually hard to be an adult. It's hard to be a person in this world when you are experiencing discrimination just on the basis of your identity. Um, yeah, so there's so many things that I can talk about pertaining to that. And so ultimately, the school district of Philadelphia, um, after six months of our department working on this policy, um, you know, we uh, it was unanimously passed in June 2016. So, yeah, we're, we're really excited about that. I was also one of the trainers to do a mass training for 68,000 school district officials and teachers around gender identity. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, so I've heard you tell pieces of that story before, and it still just, like, makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I just think that is such, I, I love... I love hearing the way that you talk about how your commitment to being your authentic self really, um, you know, despite the pain and despite the danger that um, that you experience as a result of that has been so transformative and has mm -hmm. really changed lives for, you know, thousands and thousands of kids. So, um, yeah, it's incredible. Um, Thank you. And, um, and fun fact. Um, after being pushed out of school six months later, um, my 
former school reached out to the Attic Youth Center for LGBTQ training, and I was one of the people to show up to do that training. Um, so <laughs> it was also very liberating for me to show up just six months after being pushed out of school to be able to not only show up in my authentic truth, but also to train 86 of the uh, faculty members around how they basically could have better supported people that look like me in that school. I really feel like your life should be a movie. And, and <laughs> you're still, and you're just now, I'm 22, is that right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. So I, I'm going to switch gears um just a, just a tad here um so the show is feminist hot dog and we talk a lot on the you know in the various interviews about what feminism means to folks and i've had um it means different things to different people and some people don't identify as feminists at all so i wanted to pose that question to you do you identify as a feminist and um can you sort of talk about your relationship um with that word Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so for me as his for his, historically, because I do um a lot of the things and a lot of the teachings that I learn and navigate with come from history because we don't want history to repeat itself because listen, there was no place in time where his where America was great. Um and and um, when we when uh, when we first started talking about feminism and women's rights through voting, um, it was largely centering the voices of white women, and they were excluding black women and women of color from that narrative. And so when we have conversations about feminism, and then when we're looking at intersectional feminism, feminism through the lens of looking at gender and race, is not only has feminism been very white, but feminism also excludes a lot of trans women and non-binary femmes from that narrative. Um, when we talk about women's rights today, um, when we talk about the Women's March, we are centering it around reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. Right. We are censoring it through the lens of reproductive justice, right? Pussy power and things of that nature. Um, but you're excluding trans men from reproductive justice because trans men also have vulvas and vaginas and reproductive health issues that you are advocating for, but framing it through the lens of women. And so you're excluding trans men from that narrative, but you are also excluding the real day-to-day -day, um, system, system, uh, systemic um, oppression of women that trans women experience navigating the world um, and femmes, whether you are a binary femme or not a binary femme, feminine person. So, so yeah, so feminism today doesn't really resonate with me. Um, I identify as a liberationist. So liberationist to me looks like um, I advocate for everyone, even parts of, um, even communities that I'm not necessarily a part of. So I believe personally that my liberation as a black trans woman, as a trans woman of color, does not come at the expense of undocumented people, does not come at the expense of people with disabilities. And so uh, even though those are topics that I'm not too familiar with, I always try to show up in solidarity for those communities um, because all of our liberation is tied together. I love that answer. And um, and you're the first person to identify as a liberationist that I've had on the show. So I really appreciate you kind of unpacking that for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on the topic of showing up for each other, um, I definitely think about the ways in, I mean, I think, Many of the people, I know I feel this way and many, many folks that I collaborate with um, are, you know, consider, want to, want to be good allies who, you know, women who are, are cisgender women want to be good allies to trans women and non-binary people in general. But um, I'm also very aware that um, transphobia is, you know, kind of permeates our society in many different ways. And so can you talk about some um, some ways that anti-trans ideas or words or actions can, that you notice them sort of showing up kind of in disguise or in ways that we don't necessarily think of as anti-trans, but in fact are harmful? And, and I mean, I'd really like to try to um, 
use this platform as a way to, to inform um, cisgender women of how they can be aware of those things and so they can be um, guarding against that in themselves and then be vocal when they're hearing that stuff in their own communities. A thing that I see within feminists, specifically uh, cisgender women who identify as feminists um, in Philadelphia, um, a lot of the things that I see is that they believe that their experiences with oppression is greater, um, you know, and don't actually sit down to listen and hear the voices of people who are actually more vulnerable within the very movement that you are fighting for. and so like, I think about that same thing with gay rights, right? We are talking about white gay men, but not talking about black trans women experiencing homelessness who are the most marginalized and oppressed and within the LGBTQ community. And so the same thing with feminism, right? People who are advocating for feminists are only looking at it through a binary lens, through a, a white lens. Um, I have also met and seen people who... Um, um, identify as womanist mm-hmm. and so womanist uh, and womanism is a specific um, movement centered around black women, the intersectional experiences of oppression from black women and black femmes. Mm. But even within that movement, um, within black women movements, they don't honor um, non-binary uh, femmes and non-binary women in that um, in that movement. Like so some things that I can see for cisgender women um, to be better advocates is to be able to know when to show up. Mm-hmm. Right. But also know when to step back and give your platform to to allow the most oppressed, the most vulnerable in your community. Right. To be able to share their experiences. Right. Um, you know, also is very much centered around vaginas. Like that is honestly what feminism has, has looks like today. Like feminism looks like today looks like advocating for vagina. Um, And another thing to think about is if you're only looking at women through the lens of a vagina, doesn't that sound like like if you're only looking at women as walking vaginas, doesn't that sound misogynist? Doesn't that sound like the same thing that we're fighting against, which is the patriarchy? Mm -hmm. So even the patriarchal idea around viewing women as solely having vaginas and their experiences as women are largely through the lens of them having a vagina, then that's misogynist because you're advocating to be able to show that women can have power, right? Or that um, femmes have power and that we need to um, be honored for all of those things. We need to be honored for our brains, right? Then um, it sounds a lot of like hypocritical um, ideology show up within feminist movements because they are holding the same ideas of the oppressor. We need to separate women's rights from uh from reproductive justice rights, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Because it also excludes trans men. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who are trans men who um, wish to carry children, um, but do not feel comfortable going to the OBGYN, right? Um, and also another thing to talk about is um, if a trans man, if a person assigned female at birth and identifies as a man, if he's legally recognized on his insurance as a man, so if he got his documents changed, then he gets flagged from insurance companies for getting pap smears. Mm-hmm. And so that's also another thing that we have to talk about, right? I didn't know what you were going to say when I asked that question, but I feel like I just got like... um the syllabus for like a grad school course. Like I have have some learning to do. So thank you. Uh, That was awesome. Um, Is there anything else about yourself or your work um, that you would like to share? Any other projects that you are involved in or um, other aspects of your life? Well, fingers crossed, but I um, am apply- I'm applying for a um, trans as um, an art as resistance campaign. Um, and so it's for trans artists. So I'm also an artist. So I paint and I draw and I sketch and do all of those fun things. Um, I do those things because before I had the language to talk about my trans identity, my art was able to express that before I had the language to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's all that's, 
you know, our is resistance campaign. And so it's for trans, right. Uh, trans artists. So it's for like power poems, raps or music, um, like visual art. And it's basically art that's going to be sent out all across the country um, for like trans marketing and trans resistance and trans marches. Um, and so that's like what I'm applying for. I also want to talk about like how if it wasn't for the community, if it wasn't for the non-binary black people, black femmes, if it wasn't for the queer and trans people of color in my both personal and professional networks, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish everything right that I have done because this work is not solely my own work, right? Um, that this these are coming from my ideas that came from generations before me and these are ideologies that are coming from people that I just come in contact with mm -hmm. and so um, also recognizing that if it's not the work for the entire community like you know I believe in the, I, the language and the education that I hold I believe that that is community knowledge and community education that you cannot put the price on that because as black and brown young people specifically queer and trans black and brown people, we are locked out of a lot of institutional education, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of um, educational um, barriers for us to even show up in. And so not only do we know that there's a lack of access for people of color, right? There's a lack of access for trans and queer people of color. And so we need to keep educating our own communities, right? With the knowledge that we have. Um, yeah, so that's another thing is that we need to pass along this education. We need to pass this along um, and also to those voices and experiences and stories that I have heard um, because I'm like aging out of youth age um, or what's considered youth, right, is that now what I need to do with my platform is to be to even step back, right, and to be able to hear people who are currently in high school and to be able to learn what the generation behind me is beginning to develop and create, Um uh, for the community. So those are also some things. So even us as advocates, we need to learn when to show up. We need to learn and, and hold our own privileges accountable. Because even though I'm a trans woman of color, I'm also a trans woman of color who has privilege, even though I experienced homelessness. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though I was pushed out of school right now, I have a full time job now um, I'm housed right now. I have this access to education. And so people perceive me differently in agencies when I do trainings because they have this um, this idea that I got this from an institution. Um, and so I walk into spaces with a certain level of privilege that a lot of my peers and community members don't have. Um, and, and yes, and like also pertaining to my own identities as a trans woman of color. I'm also a trans woman who's light skinned, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, anti-blackness shows differently than other forms of racism. But I also recognize that I get profiled as Hispanic and Latinx. Um, and so I get a, a, a different level of light skin privilege, right? I also recognize that I experience, um, you know, uh, privilege because I have access to a medical transition. And so I can walk into an agency and be perceived as a cisgender woman. And and that's another thing that we need to have conversations about, right? Even us as advocates, we need to hold our own privileges accountable while still working for the greater fight. So white cisgender women, you need to hold your whiteness accountable while doing this work and uplift black and brown trans femmes and trans women of color, right, to the forefront. Got it. I've got my marching orders, Hazel. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for sharing your knowledge and your education with us. I so appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. So for the Dear Feminist Hot Dog portion of the show, I ask my guests questions about things that they're expert in that I would like to know more about. So mm -hmm. um, today, Dear Feminist Hot Dog, or dear, um, did you use the word liberationist? Is that right? Mm -hmm. 
Dear Liberationist Hot Dog, we're going we're to switch it up today. Um, so we hear a lot about intersectionality um, these days and why it's not only important but critical um, because, you know, as you've talked about, the um, the tendency to kind of default to white feminism or default to trans exclusive behavior um, is not emancipatory. Um, so, you know, I think that are, there are many folks who are kind of waking up to that reality, but I also find that people are, they're more, they're more apt to be able to, um, or more able to wrap their minds around intersectional identities and oppressions than they are on an individual basis than they are to understand um, the idea behind an intersectional movement or an intersectional event or intersectional thinking. Um, and there's a lot of conflation of intersectionality and diversity. So people will say um, whether that a movement is or isn't intersectional based on whether there are different identity groups being represented. Mm -hmm. when, um, it's really more than that. So my question to you is how do you draw the distinction between diversity and intersectionality? And mm -hmm. what um, what advice do you have for listeners to avoid this conflation and to and to help them think in a more intersectional way? Yes, absolutely. So I first want to unpack diversity and then go into history around intersectionality and then what that had evolved into in today's political climate. Jeez. So yeah. So first, diversity. When I think of diversity as a trans woman of color, I think about how diversity has never done anything for me. Right. Um, I largely think of like diversity departments or think of like, oh, we're going to have one black woman, one um, gay person, one, um, you know, person with disabilities, one person who is an immigrant um, or undocumented. Um, and so look, look at our staff, right? Like, oh, look, look at the young people that we provide services for. Like we provide them for the most vulnerable communities. And so largely diversity is a tool used to exploit and tokenize, um, you know, these very vulnerable community and oppressed communities. Um, I largely think of diversity as only um, only benefiting white folks um, mm -hmm. to be able to get more grant funding, right, if we're thinking about nonprofits. You know, we're thinking, of, I'm thinking about um, how I'm only chosen to speak on this panel about my experiences as a black trans woman when I know I had um, years of experience working with LGBTQ youth. So why am I labeled only solely on my identities and not the communities that I provide services for or my social work experience? Mm -hmm. um, so I think about that also. So I think about how I'm only showing up in certain capacities for a diverse panel, only talking about my identity when the panel is not about my identities. The panel is about the work that we do for young people. Right. Um, and and why do I must constantly show up as the trans woman of color in the room? And why can't I just show up as a service provider? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, like, again, that is another form of tokenizing and exploiting my identity. Um, when I think of intersectionality, so intersectionality was a phrase coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a black woman scholar. Um, she went to school and she wrote a paper. Um, I think it was her doctorate paper. Um, don't uh, quote me on this, but it was a paper that she wrote about the court cases that um, that were happening, talking about employment discrimination of black women. Mm -hmm. And and. Ultimately, those court cases were um, not seen by the judge because the judge said this agency that you are claiming employment discrimination for being a black woman um, it doesn't exist because, you know, you're not experiencing racism because black men work here. 
you're not ex- you're not experiencing um, sexism because white women work here, right. but we're not. But we're not talking about the the specific experiences of the intersectional oppression that she experienced, which is trans, which is massage noir, which is this, which is the intersectional um, term used for the specific oppression of Black women. Mm-hmm. So literally because black women and sexism, well, the idea around intersectionality, I'm going to give an example, Uh, another example. So another example is black feminism, right, which argues the fact that being both black and a woman cannot be considered as two independent issues is because racism and sexism frequently reinforced each other. We mm-hmm. wouldn't have the language of womanism. We wouldn't have the language of black feminism if feminism was inherently intersectional. Right. Yes. So, um, so it was talked, um, so intersectionality was used to talk about your experiences with oppression based off of your gender and race. So it wasn't necessarily used to talk about your queer identity. It wasn't necessarily, like, if your queer identity was, like, like sexuality. It wasn't necessarily used to talk about other identities. Um, But as the term intersectionality has evolved and grown, um, as did our language, as did our understanding around certain concepts have evolved and changed over the years, intersectionality has been used to talk about multiple oppressed identities that are person may hold. A lot of people conflate diversity with intersectionality because just because you are listing all of your social statuses and your social identities does not make those oppressed, right? Like, you know, for example, when I think of rights, I think about rights as largely being a white concept. Because when um, gay marriage happened in 2015, in May of 2015, when it became a federal law that all gay people were to be married, were able to marry, a lot of LGBTQ nonprofits across the country, um, a lot of LGBTQ nonprofits across the country shut down because they said that their work is done. Mm-hmm. And so marriage is a privilege. You know, I'm not saying that black folks don't, you know, get married. Right. They do. But I'm saying that that is largely a fight that white LGBTQ community members were fighting for, um, but are still not doing but still weren't doing anything to address trans women of color being murdered, still doing nothing to address um, LGBTQ young people experiencing homelessness. Right. Um And so when we talk about rights, right, like, you know, yes, gay people can be married, but I can be arrested in seven states for using a public woman's restroom. The other tangent that I want to go on, go off of was black women and black people are the folks largely doing all of the labor for social justice movements. Yeah, I was just going to talk about that. Mm-hmm, right, like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson and Miss Major were at the front lines of Stonewall. And if Stonewall didn't happen, because that is the most memorable moment in history for queerness, um, if those those moments wouldn't exist, if it wasn't for those three standing up there and saying, you know, we're going to do, we're going to fight them. Mm-hmm. Right. If it wasn't for Marsha P. Johnson um, that threw the brick at the stone wall in and started those riots, then it would have just been another police raid that they were used to um, a couple days a week from this gay bar, right, from the police. And if Marsha didn't sit there and say, you know what I'm going to do, we're going to fight them, right? If it wasn't for Black trans women to be at the forefront of the movement, then we wouldn't be where we're at today with gay rights. And again, those gay rights are benefiting parts of the community that do not represent Marsha's identities, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I um, I think that answer is really comprehensive and really helpful, and it gives me some things to think about. Um, and um, and I think kind of anybody who's using the term intersectionality, I I want people to to use it, and I want them to embrace it. But I also 
Um, I don't want, I, I worry that it's sort of getting co-opted as like this buzzword um, where people are like, oh, I'm going to say intersectionality and then I'm, I'm going to sort of get a pass as being. Oh, I'm going to use intersectionality so that I can make more money and make funds and get grant funding. Oh, right. Yeah. From actual communities of color. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because I know that my privileges as a white person writing this grant, I will get this grant over a black person who's actually doing intersectional work. So I love I love that you said. Thank you for um, mm-hmm. thanks for breaking it down so clearly. Yes. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame? Yes, I am. Okay, so I'd love to hear about who you'd like to induct. Okay, yes, as I'm going to have some transparency, they are here. Oh, fantastic. Hi. Hi. (laughs) I love a surprise guest. <laughs> you're, the first, you're the first surprise guest on Feminist Hot Dog. Welcome. Yes. We're breaking down all types of doors today, okay? We are trailblazers. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they just they just said we're breaking all the doors and all the barriers down. I we are the trailblazers. <laughs> the DIY podcast is all about you can do whatever you want. <laughs> yes, yeah, so their name, uh, they use they, them, theirs pronouns. They are a non-binary black femme. Um, their name is Kayunique Nelson. So their name is so T-Y-U-N-I-Q-U-E Nelson. Um, and so they are amazing. Um, I first met uh, Uni, which is what um, I call them and a lot of their friends call them, um, which is spelled U-N-I. And mm-hmm. so their name is Uni. Um, so if I use Uni through while I'm describing them, um, you know, just know that that's also the name that they use. Hey, um, hi, Uni. I'm Adrian. It's so nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, so um, I first met Uni through doing um, different nonprofit works because at the time they were working at a nonprofit that the Attic Youth Center had worked closely with um, at different capacities. And so that's how I met them. They are 21 years old. They're Leo, so don't get their head pipes up, but I'm going <laughs> to pipe their head up for a little bit. <laughs> It's getting to be Leo season. It's your time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, so they um, do a lot of work in. Uh, uh, they do a lot of GSA work. Um, a lot of reinforcement work of Policy Two Fifty Two for the school district and working with trans and non-binary people of color within the school system. Um, they also just went through a pipeline program uh, with um, the city of LGBTQ affairs and other partnering um, and other partnering um, agencies. And so it was a pipeline program for LGBTQ leadership to have an inclusive board um, for these LGBTQ nonprofits here in Philadelphia. And they just graduated on Thursday. Congratulations. So they are going to be on the Attic Youth Center's board as a youth representation. Um, So they just got accepted onto our Attic board. Um, And they are going to be the youth voice on our board. Um, Yeah, so they also do um, a lot of work with advocates in providing inclusive sex education in schools um, and doing um, uh, and doing there's a lot of things you do (laughs) Um, inclusive sex education in schools, um, non-binary people in prep, um, because a lot of the work that's happening with prep. Do you know what prep is? Yes, but maybe for the listeners, do you mind? Just explaining yep. what that what that does. So basically, what prep does is, um, yeah. So prep is a once a day medication used for folks who are HIV negative, uh, who are engaging in sexual relationships or have sexual partners, and it uh, minimizes um, and reduces their ability um, to be able to get HIV if their partners were positive. Um, Also, another thing to note around PrEP and around HIV research 
is that um, the past year, um, we have a campaign with HIV work that non, um, that undetectable equals non-transmittable. And so if a person is HIV positive, um, they cannot, and they are taking their um, antiviral medications um, as prescribed by a doctor, um, that if they are diagnosed with HIV, if they take their the proper health treatments in six months, they now have the ability um, to not uh, give HIV to another person sexually. Mm. Yeah, so that's another thing that we need to talk about. We need to talk about that if a person is HIV negative and a person is HIV positive and y'all are engaging in relationships or engaging in sex, that the person, they are undetectable, they cannot sexually give you HIV. Which I think a lot of people do not know or don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's recent research that is done with the HIV communities. But uh, uni does a lot of work with um, giving it to young people, that healthcare providers need to give it to young people. They need to give it to non-binary people. Um, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the initial work of PrEP was men who have sex with men. Then it turned into men who have sex with men and trans women. Mm -hmm. And now it is... Um, and now it is geared towards um, all folks, right? And we need to talk about that the highest HIV rate um, in specific communities is in Black women and Black girls under 25 years of age. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Black women, cisgender and straight women, are getting HIV. And so um, they also need to have access to this, right? We need to also frame the conversation from HIV. Um, we need to frame the conversation, right, to this being an everybody thing, right? This is not for LGBTQ people, right? PrEP shouldn't be an access only for LGBTQ people, right? So uni does a lot of advocacy work on how young people need to have access to PrEP, how non people need to have access to PrEP and how black women and femmes, black femmes need to have access to PrEP. Well, I'm, I'm delighted. Is there anything else more that you would like to say about uni? Oh, they also um, do, um, also they do a lot of work around reproductive justice, like how I described reproductive justice earlier around excluding trans men. Um, you know, they also do a lot of work around reproductive justice as well. And also, like, um, like, um, yeah, we have reproductive justice for non-binary people. Um, we need to talk about um, body autonomy, right? And also, they do a lot of work around consent. And when we're talking about inclusive sex education, we also need to talk about consent. Um, and we need to talk about, um, yeah, so they do inclusive sex education for young people. We need to talk about consent. We need to talk about pleasure and how it's not just used for uh, reproduction. Um, because this is the reality of the young people that we come across. Um, we need to talk about um, access to PrEP for all gender and identity people um, and non-binary people explicit, um, specifically. Um, and, yeah. And also a lot of work with young people and education systems, GSAs, um, and to rebrand it from gay, a straight alliance to gender and sexuality alliance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I'm so inspired by you both. Thank you so much. Well, Hazel, thank you so much for joining me today. I like Absolutely. I said before, I feel like I I feel like you just handed me a syllabus of um ideas and terms that I need to learn more about and that I'm really excited to explore more on the show. And I'm just incredibly grateful that you took the time. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you, listeners. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to support the show on Patreon. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music, and our audio editing is by Square Lightning Design. Until next time, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye.
This has been a production of NOCO FM. 